Good evening. Good evening, buddy. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing just fine. How about you? I'm doing all right. I'm a little tired, but I'm looking forward to it. Looking forward to being tired? I'm looking forward to this podcast and then good night's sleep. I'm into that. Both of those things. And so tonight we're going to do something a little bit different. Usually I'm a lot more meticulous in my preparation. Okay. But tonight I want to have what may be more of a typical podcast. Good. So we're just going to have a topic that is based on an article that I read, which is part of a collection of articles that make up a really good book. And we're just going to start with that article, start with that topic, and we're just going to discuss it. Sweet. And see how it goes. Yeah. So to introduce the book for those who are listening and they might be interested in checking it out, it's called What is Dispensationalism? And I got it for free because the editor, Paul Miles, is my friend on Facebook. He's a really awesome guy. And I'm really getting a lot out of this book. Awesome. It's got some really good topics and I just went through the table of contents and some of them it's like, I don't know if we'll talk about that necessarily, but I circled a bunch here that I think would be very thought provoking for our podcast. And tonight, the one that we're going to talk about is an article written by David Criswell, and it's titled, Is the Old Testament Relevant Today? And I think this is a really good one for a lot of reasons. Excuse me. Yeah. (laughs) You know what? (laughs) Uh, Going into this, I was thinking, okay, I've got to come up with at least one name, not to slur anybody, but to simply let people know when we say it's a threat that people are undermining the Old Testament. It really is, right? And to give something concrete like a name, a ministry, you know, that just, it kind of seals the deal and lets people know we're not making up problems that aren't there. No, that's true. And so Andy Stanley is one example of a very prominent evangelical who's made a number of questionable, borderline heretical statements about the Old Testament. In fact, I have another friend on Facebook uh, named Dante, and he's like this avid reader I think that I'm an avid reader, Yeah, but he reads like a book a week. Wow. I mean, he's a very quick reader and he posts on Facebook little selections of these Mm. books as he goes through and he'll read any book. Like he said, I'm a Christian. I firmly believe in the word of God, but I believe in understanding the other side, you know, exercising discernment. And he even read the satanic Bible. Oh, wow. And, you know, of course he highly critiqued it. Yeah. You know, the whole time, but, um, I like how he posts this stuff up on Facebook. And, uh, one of the books that he read was by Andy Stanley mm. and he was quoting all of these things from this book. And I was like, wow, I, I haven't found a single statement so far that I don't find bothersome mm-hmm. at the very least, you know, like yeah, stuff yeah. implied stuff and su- uh, suggested, uh, that makes me very uncomfortable really, and, other, and other things are just outright wrong. It really makes so, me wonder why Andy Stanley went there. Like, you I don't know, know. What I mean? like, is it just that we're only hearing parts of what he's saying and it's sensationalism that he's saying this stuff? And no, I think he really believes it. And I think that the reason this is my guess, yeah, you yeah. know, I don't know the man and I've not asked him personally. So right. I think that one of the reasons in my mind, why, he feels this way is because he sees so many people stumble on the old Testament Mm. and he thinks, okay, well it's old. If the old Testament is causing you to stumble, you can still believe in Jesus and you can believe in Christianity without 
stumbling on this stuff that's right old, you know, yeah. and that's something that he's mentioned in his book. He's like, have you noticed that so many people who end up rejecting Christianity, they reject it because of something in the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's essentially saying that it's optional, basically. Like, if somebody has a problem with the Old Testament, then just say to him, well, you can set that aside, but don't set aside the New Testament. You know, he's trying to isolate yeah, 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 the yeah. New Testament, and you can't. The, Old Te- the New Testament's not in a vacuum. Okay, it's based on the Old Testament. That's one of the issues that we'll talk about in this podcast. And we'll see, you know, how fruitful the discussion is. Maybe we'll continue talking about it next week. But he is one person that I thought of as I was reading this. And again, the article does not mention him. Sure. But, but again, he's a very prominent evangelical. Here in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. Right. Not too far away from us. And yeah. so anyways, the qu- big question, I guess, to start things off is voiced by the author here, and I'm just going to quote him, of what value is an old man? Hmm. What about old wine? More importantly, what about the Old Testament? Is old synonymous with dead? These are no small questions. Some hold that the Old Testament is dead and irrelevant. Some churches do not even bother teaching the Old Testament. But is it even possible to understand the new without the old? Every century or so, a new generation arises which thinks itself superior to the old. They ignore the lessons of the past, claiming they are but relics of bygone days. But these are the generations that leave waste and revolution in their wake. And so that's a really powerful statement. And he unpacks that throughout the rest of the article. But the next thing that he does that I think is really good is he gives us two verses to consider that deal with the Old Testament and its relationship with us as Christians. And so the first one is Matthew 5.18. And uh, I'll just read it here because he's got it quoted in his article. It's simpler than turning in my Bible. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Matthew 5.18. And so he says here you have a statement that the law is still in some sense binding. It's it's not entirely irrelevant. Okay. So he is going to qualify this obviously throughout the article and explain there are certain elements of the Old Testament that don't apply today. But he's saying that in some sense the Old Testament hasn't lost its relevance. And it will continue to be relevant until everything in it mm, is fulfilled right. in the end. And then in Galatians 4 he quotes something else from the New Testament. This is Paul But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. So somebody like Andy Stanley perhaps would take that verse and say, hey, there you have it. The law was for Mm. a certain time. You know, that time has been accomplished it's done it's in the past and so we don't need the old testament but that sort of confuses the words here and we're going to talk about some definitions whenever jesus is referring to the law he's not exclusively referring to the law of moses the law as you'll often see when reading throughout the new testament is often a catch-all term that refers to the whole old Old Testament. testament Now, when Paul's talking about the law in Galatians 4, he's not referring to the whole Testament. He's specifically 
referring to the Mosaic right, law. Right. So, I mean, interpreting scripture is sort of important. And, you know, there's, there's a lot that can be said about properly understanding these words. And so as we do that, let's go into another topic. And we've discussed this a ton in our podcast on on Sunday mornings, we've talked about the dispensations, but what exactly is a dispensation for somebody who maybe hasn't listened to all that that we've talked about? Maybe it's the first time you're listening to us. Well, we need to draw a distinction between a covenant and a dispensation mm. because the Old Testament's got both of them. All right. The word covenant deals with uh, God's contractual agreements with people, uh, nations, peoples. Peoples, yeah. yeah. And so it has to do with an arrangement between God and men, right? Dispensation is a little bit more narrow. Uh, it's more of the rules and guidelines that are part of that mm-hmm. covenant. Uh, so, for example, there is the, let's see, uh, get my words right real quick. Uh, the covenant that God made with Noah is often simply referred to as the Noah covenant, covenant. All yeah. right. So that's in Genesis chapter nine. Well, there's also a dispensation that parallels or overlaps this, and it's called the dispensation of government. Now, Mm. what is the dispensation of government? It has to do with God administering his will in a new way, and this was through government. Before the flood, there was no government that God had appointed Mm -hmm. um, other than God directly intervening like he did with Cain. Uh, Human government was not something that existed apparently there was a, a might makes right philosophy there was violence in the earth in those days what's his name um bob bob what's his um i can't remember who is the big leader he was the big uh, giant um then at, at yeah babylon uh, ba- the nimrod Babel. yeah nimrod, yeah, yeah that was it and so and Nim- nimrod was after the flood but you're right uh the tower of babel's key in this discussion too because that was when we see mankind like violating the covenant. Mm-hmm. And so the covenant God made with Noah involves this dispensation or this new list of rules. Okay. Right. And these rules were to govern the way nations behaved themselves before God. Mm-hmm. And, and human government was fundamental to that. So they were to have capital punishment. They were to spread out and fill the earth and, and set up, you know, different communities. And they were to justly, govern those communities autonomously, but we don't really have any more information besides that. Right. But the idea of like an empire with someone like Nimrod Mm. ruling over the whole human race, that was a violation of what God intended. And so that's the difference between a covenant and a dispensation. They, they almost overlap so much that you can easily confuse them, Mm -hmm. but real quickly, just going through the covenants, you have the Edenic covenant that doesn't apply anymore. That was before man sinned in the garden. And it involved the two trees, the tree mm-hmm. of life, tree of knowledge. If you eat of the tree of knowledge, then you will day you will die in that day. And so that obviously was broken, that covenant. Um, the positive side of the covenant is if they would have eaten from the tree of life, they would have lived forever and they would have stayed with God and we wouldn't be here. Sin sin wouldn't be a problem. You know, sin would have never happened. Okay, then there's the adamant covenant that comes after, and this indicates that God is going to send his son into the world to crush the head of the serpent. Right. He's referred to as the seed of the woman and uh, death is mentioned as a penalty, but yet Adam and Eve were given a substitute. 
you know, animals were slain mm-hmm. to make coats of skins for them. They were kicked out of the garden, but they were not completely removed from fellowship with God because they continue to come before God and offer to him. Right. So that's the adamant covenant. Okay. And so many would say that you have two dispensations. They're not specifically referred to, but uh, again, they, they line up with these covenants. So the first one would be the dispensation of innocence. So mm-hmm. that's almost synonymous with the covenant that God made with Adam and Eve in Eden. So the dispensation of innocence would be God was administering his will with mankind at a time when they had not yet sinned. Mm. And so that didn't last very long. Okay. And then after that, uh, as part of the adamant covenant, you have a new dispensation called conscience and conscience means, well, now mankind does know the difference between right and wrong in a personal experiential sense and so their conscience is to govern their behavior. Okay, so that dispensation came to a close in a sense because whenever God sent the flood and then he gave the covenant with Noah, he gives something else to govern mankind. So mankind's not just governed by their conscience now, we're also governed by government. Okay, and so again, these covenants and these dispensations, I don't want to go through all of them right. you know, in too much detail tonight. But the idea is that there is a lot in the Old Testament prior to the giving of the law through Moses. Okay, a ton. I mean, just the covenants. If you're still not convinced about the dispensations, the concept's definitely there. But if you just want to stick with the wording of Scripture, we do have the covenant in Eden. We have the covenant after with Adam and Eve. We have the covenant with Noah. Okay, we have the covenant with Abraham. We have four covenants right there. And we haven't even gotten to Moses yet. Right. And so to toss out the whole Old Testament thinking that, okay, that's all the law. That's all Moses. Right. That's just false. It's just irresponsible. Right. And so there are things in the Old Testament that are binding today. The no way covenant is still in force today. I mean, God still, you know, gives us the rainbow. He still uh, keeps his promise to not flood the earth again. Uh, he still expects human government to, you know, exercise that delegated authority he's given us justly. I mean, right. that's still enforced today. That's for everybody, that's not for everybody. just the Jews. Yeah, right, it's not yeah. just for the Jews. And so, obviously, the Old Testament in that sense is still relevant today, yeah. uh, still binding today. Yeah. So that's important to get. Uh, another thing that's important to understand when we're talking about the Old Testament, um, and this is just interesting facts, uh, I suppose it's not necessary but it's important information, I do think. Uh, and it's how their Old Testament was divided up. And so yeah. if you were to look at our Old Testament, their Old Testament, it's all the same stuff. Okay, all the same words. It's just the way that it's organized and right. formatted. Uh, they have the Torah or the law. Yep. That's also a little confusing because yep. that section of Scripture called the law yes. includes the Noahic Covenant, includes right. Genesis, which yeah. doesn't pertain to the law of Moses. Mm-hmm. But because Moses wrote, wrote all it. these things and he's seen as the law giver, the five books that Moses wrote are just called the law mm-hmm. and they do contain the law. Um, and so that's the first section, the first five books. Then there's the second section. It's called the Nevim and the Nevim are the prophets. Spell, that's the prophet. Okay. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, N-A-V-I-M, the Nevim. Okay. And if you want to know the Nevim, You'll recognize these, but they may not come to your mind as prophets initially, like Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. Those don't sound like prophets to me. It sounds like history. Well, that's the way we understand it in our Bibles. 
but they understood this as a time period of prophets. I mean, after all, there were prophets during the time of Joshua judges and, you know, Samuel was a prophet and they were prophets during the days of the Kings, like Elijah and Elisha. So you can understand where they're coming from there, but uh, that's the way they start out that section. And then of course you had the familiar ones that we would say, Oh, this is the prophets. You got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and so on and so forth. And so that's the Nevim. And then you have the Ketuvim. The Ketuvim is the writings. And so the writings would be Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ruth, uh, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, and ironically, you got Daniel in there. And you would think Daniel would be in the prophets. Um, it's sort of both though, right? Because well, yeah, there is history in the book, Yeah, but there's also history in Isaiah and he's put in the section of the prophets. Yeah. So you're like, why isn't Daniel in the prophets? It's interesting. There are several people who've written about this and they wonder like Daniel's a pretty prominent prophet. So why is he not in the prophets? prophets?" And so rabbis have talked about this and they debated it back and forth, you know, his place and everything. And uh, some people, have suggested that Daniel was almost demoted. Mm. Um, he was put in the writings. He was put in the Ketuvim to lessen his status somewhat wow. because he talks so clearly about Christ in Daniel 9. Yeah. Um, and so, and Christians went to Daniel often and said, look at, look at Daniel. And, yeah. and so there are some Jews who believe the Ketuvim are of a lesser inspiration than the other section. And that's wrong. Right. But some people would say the first foremost inspira- inspired section would be the law right. and then the Nevim and then the Ketuvim. So they would look at it in a descending order. Hmm. And so since Daniel is in the Ketuvim, he's not, you know, as, important. He's not as important. Right. And so it's like, wow, that's pretty messed up. Yeah. And so, um, but I anyways, mean- I've, I've read people make that observation that, um, that Daniel is put in the Ketuvim and he really, doesn't belong there. It, it's but, funny because in, you know, people always question whether Daniel is accurate, meaning, you know, he, he talks about, um, Alexander the great. Yeah. Right. And then people go, well, no, that had to have been written after Alexander the great. Yeah. When in fact it wasn't, it was, it was written before. before. Yeah. yeah. But, um, it's, it's interesting that Daniel is in the Ketuvim. But anyways, um, that's the way their Old Testament is divided. Okay, so when we see the word law, this basic division, now I, I, can't, I can't say if this division exactly as we have it today was in force at the time of Christ. Roughly, yes, because we see in Luke, Jesus referred to the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, right? which seems to roughly correspond to the right. Torah, the Nevim, and the Ketuvim. But as far as Daniel's place in it, was Daniel originally in the mm. prophets, and then was he moved to the Ketuvim? Uh, I'm not sure about that. That'd be something I have to look mm-hmm. up. But uh, it wouldn't surprise me if Daniel was put in the Ketuvim After. in response to Christian apologists yeah. using his his material. Uh, but that again, like I said, don't quote me on that. If you're listening, that's just something to research, but, uh, let's talk now about the purpose of the law proper. So if we're thinking about the law, uh, in a strict sense, we're talking about the law of Moses. First off, we understand this was given to Israel and it was not given to anybody else. Right. Okay. Now if someone sojourned among Israel and they wanted to be under the law and to live among the people and to keep the feasts, you know, then they could. Yeah. So yeah, they could be put under the law, but they were not required 
to keep the law. And even the rabbis later on, they believed that a Gentile could be righteous apart from the law. Um, they believed that they had to keep the, the Noahide or the Noahide laws. And the Noahide laws are based on the Noahic covenant. Mm-hmm. And so they would say, well, as long as they don't worship idols, as long as they don't eat animals when they're still living, when the lifeblood is mm-hmm. coursing through them, as long as they, you know, don't murder and they, you know, justly govern themselves, then they can be righteous in the eyes of God. Uh, yeah. And, and they, the Jews still have that today. Yes, they do. As, yeah. You know, like Oscar Schindler, for instance, it's the first one that comes to mind to be one of the righteous. How, I forget how they put it, but because of what he did, you know, during Second World War and saving yeah. the Jews. And, and so, anyways. and so, you know, the idea that the Jews believe that you had to, you know, be a proselyte. Um, yeah. I think that they, they certainly in the first century thought that they were superior uh, to the Gentiles because they had the law. But, you know, there, there were Jews who believed at the very least that if you kept the Noahide laws, then God would accept you. Mm-hmm. Right. And you didn't have all the same privileges of Israel. I mean, right. you weren't living in the promised land. You didn't have the temple. You didn't have the glory cloud. You know, you didn't have any of that stuff. Even though uh, some came with them out of Egypt. Yes, yes, right? yes. So. And again, that would that would be roughly comparable to a foreigner sojourning among yes, them. Exactly. And, yeah. And so there was there was this ability for people to come in. Uh, we see that with Rahab and with other yeah. people that married into the nation. Um, but the Noahide laws were binding on the Gentiles. The Jews had more to do. And that was all given in the law of Moses. Okay. They had, I think it's like 613 uh, laws. If you count them up the mm-hmm. way they, they reckoned those laws on top of the 10 commandments, you know, if you put it all together, all the additional rules, I think it's like 613. Um, but anyways, that's the law, strictly speaking. Now, how does that relate to Christians? Well, if we're just talking about that, like that narrow sense of the law, it is not binding on Christians today. Right. I mean, Paul is 100% clear in his writings. That's why people hated Paul. Right. I mean, in the early church, there were groups that didn't really want to jettison Jesus exactly, but they hated Paul. Right. So you had Ebionites, and the Ebionites would say, oh, well, Jesus, he's the Messiah in some sense. You know, they didn't believe he was God in the flesh, but he's Messiah. He's a prophet. We like him, but yeah, this Paul guy, he's a heretic. Yeah. And there were people back then who believed that way. And so... There are people today, believe it or not, who who hold to those old Absolutely. heresies. Some people wouldn't jettison Paul, though, but they would redefine Paul's writings so much that they try to make Paul into a legalist. Yeah. You know, it's watching Hebrew roots people. Say them, yeah. yeah, trying to watch them interpret the book of Galatians is it's almost comical if it wasn't so tragic, mm. you know, because they twist it so much because they just want the law. They want to hold on to it. They think that the law is is still bonding on us. They think that it, it sanctifies us in some way. And so when Paul speaks about the law, they said, Oh, he's talking about that pharisaical yeah. twisting perversion of the law. No, he says the law. He just says the law. <laughs> and so we, we don't need to read into scripture as they do when they're handling those passages. But I mean, the law Paul in Rev or not revelation, another R word, sorry. In Romans, uh, he makes it very clear that the law 
gives knowledge of sin. He says, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is knowledge of sin. He says that in Romans 3.20. So the law was never about saving people. The law was always about making it clear that people are incapable of being righteous in God's eyes on their own. So the law, honestly, uh, I think it was super strict on purpose. When you read the law and you're reading it, you're like, man, like, God, this is a lot. Yeah. Like, it's almost over the top. Like, the clothes that you wear and, you know, don't mix these kinds of fabrics and all these food laws and the washings and the purity rituals. It seems like God is just going out of his way to make it hard. Yeah. He is. Absolutely. So what is he trying to do? He's trying to illustrate something that we don't see we're blind to every day. We are blind to how often we sin. We're completely unaware of it. Like we sin all the time. And as we grow in our faith and we become closer to God, it's like the closer you get to the light, the more dirt on you, you can see, right? You see how dirty you are. And so we don't generally see our sin um, as clearly as God does. And in a moment, we might be able to see through conviction, like how sinful something is, but like overall, there are a lot of things that just pass our notice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so the old Testament was about throwing in the face of God's people every single day, how easy it is to sin, Mm. how easy it is. Like, and the law being so hard was meant to bring them to a place where they would say, man, being righteous is really hard to do. Like, I mean, keeping this law is hard to do. And I mean, if you remove all the food laws and all the ritual laws and all that stuff, like being righteous, having righteous thoughts, having righteous words, having righteous deeds, it is, it is impossible to Mm. do. And if we could only like see from God's perspective, look back on the day, how often we sinned, we'd be Mm. like, man, like if I tried my best to go throughout the day and, and keep the law by the end of the day. There are still unintentional sins. Like in the Old Testament, there were sacrifices every single day in the tabernacle or later the temple, and they covered unintentional sins. It was like there were people who were sinning and they didn't realize it. And and because the law was so meticulous. And so I think it was meticulous to show people how impossible it is to keep it, to keep it. I had no idea. I'd never heard that before. The fact that it was to make them realize that I just, I was always thought it was to set them apart. And that's definitely part of it. God, he usually has more than one reason for what he does. I've ceased to believe that, look, there's just one reason. God is, he's so marvelous and wondrous in his works that I think he's got a lot of reasons. It was to keep them separate from everybody. And whenever you're looking up, like, what's the purpose of all this? Yeah. uh, Generally, people are going to say, oh, well, it sets them apart. True. Yeah. Uh, It it made them healthy. Yeah. Okay. True. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. But on top of all that, the law is is typological okay it's just like the tabernacle is full of all these symbols which represent spiritual realities right the law represents spiritual realities too uh now it doesn't mean that each thing individually represents a spirituality like okay what does this lobster represent i'm not supposed to eat it what does it represent it may not be like that right okay but in general they do represent spiritual truth and the spiritual truth is you cannot do it and if you think you can do it Okay, I'm going to give you an idea. It's a, That's really what I think the yeah. law is. I'm going to give you an idea of how hard it is. I'm going to do something that's almost like an illustration. Uh, it, it's mm. like a uh, a visual aid. That's a, basically what the law is, I think. It's a visual aid which reveals the problem of sin in the heart. 
And I think it's what Jesus said, like, you know, later on in his ministry, it's not about what goes into you. Right. Right. It, so it's, so he's saying this stuff that you, that you're right. supposed to do, you are supposed to do these things according right. to the law, but what is it really about? Yeah. Like y'all are kind of missing the point of the law. Right. You know, you're getting so hung up on the external that you forget. What does this represent? So the reality behind the, the illustration, I think is something that Christians need to remind it, themselves right. of. It doesn't make you unclean what you eat. It's, it's what comes out of you that makes you unclean. That's right. And how often, yeah. How often do we render ourselves unclean and right. not even realize it? Yeah. So the law was meant to, again, it was to force them every single day to realize their need for redemption. Right. They had to do sacrifices every day to realize, wow, there's no way we could ever do it. Mm. Like we haven't gone a single day without a need for a sacrifice. Not right. a single day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anybody who thinks they can earn their way to heaven, they've missed the whole point of the law. And that's exactly what happened by the time Jesus came around. They had, yeah. they had missed the point of the law. That and they, they made a whole bunch of new ones. They did. They, they, they did that also. Um, so he says in his article, uh, Mr. Criswell, or Dr. Criswell, I should say, as long as there are sin and unbelief, the law is necessary. We do not live under the law, but it may continue to convict us if we continue to sin. I, I think that's important to note. I, I've often encountered dispensationalists who almost, uh, they kind of go a little overboard in saying like the law has no, it's like, it doesn't relate to us anymore. It's not relevant anymore. Um, I do, I do think that if one's careful about it, the law still does hold a place in the life of a Christian in the sense that it does reveal, it does reveal sin. I think that the law does that. Like the Ten Commandments. I was about to say the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Like the Ten Commandments are hanging right behind my head right here. Okay. And Jesus is telling yeah, and you little saw that. figure yeah. Jesus is saying, I'm watching it. <laughs> right. And so that right there is something I think that when you see it, when you're going out the door, you see those 10 commandments, it's a reminder, right? It's a reminder of God's standard. Now, again, if we start saying this is the standard that we keep in order to be saved, then that's an Wrong. abuse of the law. We right. need to realize we're under grace when none under the law. We're saved by grace through faith and it's a free gift. However, when we see the law, it does reveal our sin. It convicts us. It gets a hold of us. Um, so I don't think there's anything wrong with using the law in that manner. Obviously, the Holy Spirit does the convicting. We just present the word. But right. uh, I think uh, presenting that particular part of the word is a good thing to do. And that's why I like way of the master. Now, I don't like yeah. I don't like how His, Ray Comfort yeah. at the very end defines repentance as stop sinning, because that's not yeah. what repentance means. Right. If repentance means stop sinning. Well, I hate to break it to you. Mr. Comfort, but you yeah. haven't stopped sinning. Right. Ever. Okay. Yeah. So you haven't repented according to your own definition. So I don't like his way of defining repentance. It's a change of mind, a change of heart. Uh, but he sometimes takes it too far. I think uh, he makes it out like you got to turn from sin in your practice in order to be saved. And that is adding works. And so that's one thing I think that he gets wrong. But when he takes the law and he presents it to get people aware of the reality that they need a savior. I think he's doing well with that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I 100% agree with that. Now, yeah. some, some people criticize, say, ah, oh, we're not under the law. Well, again, the law, just like this author says, um, as long as there's sin and unbelief, the law is necessary. And it continues to reveal sin. So whenever people say the Old Testament is irrelevant, well, the Old Testament gives us the law. Now, again, whenever I'm showing somebody their need for a savior, I'm probably not going to go to the food laws probably not going to go to 
you know, the ritual right, washing exactly. section, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. But I might do what we were just doing right now, talking about, okay, what's the point of all this? Right. Like, look at how insanely complicated this system is. That is how hard it is to be righteous. That right. is what it's like. That's right. And so I think that that's helpful. Yeah. Uh, but now the next thing that I want to talk about, and this is something that I found really insightful. And this is probably the biggest thing, and, and maybe the rest of it we'll save till next week. But the question he asks is this. When does the new covenant begin? So when everybody's like about, oh, we got Old Testament versus New Testament. Okay, when does the new covenant begin? Uh, he mentions here that another argument used to demean the Old Testament is the idea that the Old Testament disappeared when Christ came. Mm. And the quote that they use is Hebrews 8.13. So this is a verse that, I never really thought, I didn't take the time to, to stop and read it carefully, but he makes a really good point here. Uh, and it says in Hebrews 8.13, uh, and I quote, yeah. In that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Yeah. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, first off, he points out, that the Old Covenant, the Law, and the Old Testament, though they're closely intertwined, they're not synonymous. And the abolition of the Law and the Old Covenant does not nullify all the Old Testaments. We already dealt with that. But the next thing he mentions is Hebrews doesn't actually say that the Law, the Old Covenant, has ceased altogether. He says that it's becoming obsolete and growing old and is ready to vanish away. So what does that mean? Mm. All right. That, I was like, whoa, like that's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what does that mean? Does that mean in some sense the old covenant is still in force today? What exactly does that mean? I like the way he answers this question. Okay. But, but before I look at his answer, my initial answer, which I still think is a good one. Yeah. Uh, is, well, he's referring here to the old covenant system of worship which was still in force when he was writing this. Right. So the temple was still standing. People were still making sacrifices, even though they were doing that, you know, in spite of what Jesus had done. Right. And in spite of what the apostles were preaching, the old covenant, in a sense, hadn't completely ceased because right. the temple was still standing. still there for another okay. 30 years or something. Yeah, whatever, exactly. Yeah. And if this was written in like the 60s. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it, Ten was, years. it was about to go. Yeah. All right. Yeah. It was about gone. But, um, uh, I think that that's a good explanation, but he points out another way to understand this, which I think is insightful. So uh, he goes back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah talks about the new covenant. It's like the key passage in the Old Testament that talks about the new covenant. It's a prophecy about when it will one day be inaugurated. It's Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34, and I'll read it. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Notice right there mm, that it's with Israel the and yeah, the yeah. house of Judah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts, or sorry, in, in, in their with minds, yep. and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I'll remember no more. This is talking about after. Yeah. So that's something, yeah. that's something interesting here. Now 
He first observes, as we did, the covenant is promised to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now he mentions this doesn't mean that Christians aren't partakers of it. Right. Because in Romans 11, it says we are grafted in. Absolutely. Okay? So we, it's interesting and it's sadly ironic that Gentile Christians are already participating in new covenant blessings, mm -hmm. even if it hasn't been fully inaugurated. Right. It hasn't been fully right. inaugurated, which yeah. is what most Christians believe. Yes. But it actually hasn't yet. Right. So that is what he means when it says it's becoming obsolete it's ready to vanish away there's a sense in which the new covenant hasn't yet fully arrived right and that's what hebrews is teaching so the new covenant will not fully arrive until the jews are revived which is at which the end of the tribulation yeah, it hasn't happened yet right. so has the new covenant happened in part i mean gentiles are already part of the new covenant in the sense that we have the law in our minds and we have it written on our hearts. I believe that's a reference to regeneration being born again. Absolutely. So we have that. We have the Holy spirit yep. and we know the Lord. All right. Yep. So Gentiles are already. And of taking course, part. saved Jews yeah. are already taking part in this. Yes. But the new covenant is not limited to that. Right. It goes beyond it to include all of Israel. Um, so he points that out. The new covenant teaches that all know me. And he also points this out. I, I love this. He mentions the Augustinians and amillennialists mm. believe that we are living in the millennial kingdom and enjoying the new covenant blessings today. But can anyone look at the world in which we live full of murder, wars, pestilence, and death okay. and claim with a straight face that this is the promised kingdom? Because it's getting worse and worse every day. Yeah. And so he's like, clearly the new covenant in the context of Jeremiah 31, you know, God bringing the kingdom. Because the new covenant and the kingdom are very closely That's associated. Right. Yeah. Uh, it hasn't come yet. Correct. We're still waiting on it. I was talking with somebody today about this, and, and I really liked what they had to say. But I always am careful uh, when I run into somebody who says the kingdom is now. Now, this person was like me. He was preacher, premillennial. But he was saying there is a sense in which the kingdom is already here. And he was saying basically what I just said, that believers are already participating in kingdom blessings. I agree with that, right? Yeah. I, I won't deny that, but we're not participating in all of the kingdom right. blessings because the kingdom strictly speaking is not here. And that's why in Matthew six, when we pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're saying it, your kingdom isn't here. It's in heaven right that's now right. in the sense that you're actively governing heaven to where it's perfect. And there's no rebellion there. Your will is perfectly done there, mm -hmm. but we live in a province of God's, perfect perfect kingdom yeah which is imperfect <laughs> it is in rebellion right and he hasn't subdued this province yet and so that's part of the new covenant i mean we haven't got it all yet so that just kind of it struck me as very insightful i don't generally think about that i think mm -hmm. oh new covenant it's been enforced since jesus shed his blood it's yeah. the blood of the covenant yeah. that's what he said and that's absolutely true but the new covenant when it was originally revealed in jeremiah 31 it pertained to it's the Jews exactly. in a special way. Yes. And since they haven't revived yet, we can't say, strictly speaking, that it's here. Just like, strictly speaking, we can't say the kingdom's here yet. That's right. So we're, it's like an already not yet sort of mm -hmm. thing. It's that tension. Uh, and there are dispensationalists who have admitted that. Um, they're called progressive dispensationalists. I don't agree with them on everything, though. Right. Um, I think that they're onto something when they say the kingdom's got this already not yet vibe mm. um but they'll also take that too far and say that jesus is already reigning on david's throne and david's no, throne's an earthly throne that's right 
and he's not on earth right now reigning on David's throne. Um, even though it, it is finished. Well, his, his work, his <laughs> you know work is finished. Like yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. he's paid the price, not just for our sins, but he's paid the price for, uh, restoration but and all the Satan physical... still rules yes. sort of kind of, he, he does, he does, he's he the does, God. but God allows things to happen. Yes, of course. And no one denies that the kingdom in a sense is always, it always has been, always will be because yes. God's never been off the throne, right? Correct. I mean, you know, even when the sun came down, the father's throne is set in heaven and hasn't ceased to be since the beginning of all things. So there's a sense in which the kingdom's always been. It's always going to be. Right. But when we're talking about like God's will being revealed and God's will yes. being enforced. Yes. He's not enforcing it on David's throne today. No. If you go back to the Old Testament, I mean, there is going to be a time where Jesus is in the Holy of Holies. The Amen. glory cloud returns yep. and he is going to delegate the administration of his people, Israel to a descendant of David. Uh, you know, the, the prince, you know, who, who eats in the gate or who eats in the, um, the presence of the Lord. And there's going to be a priesthood, yep. uh, you know, as, as, as the priest of Zadok, sorry, the word got stuck there for a second. The priest of Zadok and, uh, all the nations are going to be, you know, ruled over. Yep. And the capital is going to be Israel, Israel. Uh, so again, there's a, there's a sense in which, uh, when we speak of the old covenant, uh, it, it hasn't fully passed away yet because the new Testament does away with the old and the new Testament or the new covenant rather hasn't fully come yet. So if the new covenant hasn't fully come, then the old covenant hasn't fully gone. Does that make right. any sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And so, um, but yeah, uh, wrapping things up. He says that you can't understand anything in the Old Testament without the New, and you can't understand the New Testament without the Old. I and, agree with that. And I, I fully agree yeah. with it. And I think that this highlights another issue, which we won't be able to fully cover now, but I'll introduce it and let you mull it over. Mm. And it's it's how dispensationalists interpret the Bible and how... Uh, Covenant theologians or non-dispensationalists, how they interpret the Bible. And I feel like there's this battle between the two, which sadly, um, it kind of has to exist because they're they're diametrically opposed to each other in their theology, and you kind of have to go one side or the other. But the views are you take the Bible at face value and uh, you interpret it in light of its historical grammatical context, and that's called the historical grammatical method. Okay. Okay. And so when you read about the temple in Ezekiel. Yeah. Okay. The millennial temple. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a literal temple. Absolutely. And the priests are literally offering up sacrifices. Okay. Absolutely. That's the historical grammatical method. Now, yes. the uh, millennialists would look at that and say, nah, it's all spiritual. It's an allegory. Okay. But here's the thing. They both, they both make mistakes. Now I'm obviously more in the <coughs> camp of taking things literal because mm -hmm. uh, I am a dispensationalist. Right. But I, I do think that sometimes dispensationalists will too quickly rule out the possibility of a type. Um, a type would be, yes, it's a real thing, but it represents something spiritual, you know, and they're very careful about that because they feel like, Ooh, that sounds like allegory and mm -hmm. we don't like allegory. Cause that's what those all <laughs> millennials are always doing. Right. And, and so there's, it's not really the same though. Like for example, the temple in the old Testament, the temple is a real temple. Okay. Absolutely. Um, the temple that Ezekiel describes is a real temple. 
But I think we would all agree that the temple on earth, it is a type of the temple in heaven. It's right. Okay. That's the what Jerusalem we're led to believe. Earth, it's supposed to be exactly what it's supposed to be like. Yes. Is, yes. And so the earthly Jerusalem yes. points to the heavenly Jerusalem. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Now the amillennialist makes errors because they will like reject the type. Um, for example, Israel, mm-hmm. they'll say, um, you know, Israel was cast off by God, but I would say, no, Israel is a type of the bride. Yes. And I would say, since the bride is never cast off and is eternally secure, then Israel can never be cast off. Right. So the bride, so the, if the bride's secure, then Israel has to be secure. And for Israel to be secure, they have to have the land. They have to be preserved ethnically. They have to be, yes. You know, God's chosen people now. Yes. Um, And so, I think that, again, one has to be leaning one way or the other, but I think sometimes the dispensationalists will rule out the types and they'll say, ah, well, that's that's too close to allegory. Let's not do that. But then you'll have over here some amillennialists, I, I will admit, you know, when I read people like Charles Spurgeon, because he did this a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. reform people do this a little bit, right. um, every now and then he'll take something and you know, he'll make an allegory out of it, or he'll say that this is a spiritual understanding of a passage and, and I'll read what he has to say. And I'll be like, man, that's pretty insightful. I think I can, I can get on board with that. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that you're maybe in certain places, um, you're rejecting the literal meaning for the sake of your spiritualized mm-hmm. interpretation. But uh, I can, in some places see, yes, there's, there's a valid point that you're making. I mean, right. I, I can read commentators um, who are on millennial. And I could say, yeah, I think that what you're saying here sure. is good. Like, I think that this does represent that. I believe. Absolutely. But so I think that they both got valid points. Mm-hmm. I used to, you know, think like there's nothing good. The non-millennialist could say. Bless you. Sorry. Uh, but now that I'm reading some of them, I could see, yeah, you're right about this, but um, you, well, it's, you, it's like, the, it's only half the picture when they yeah. do that. Right. Bless you. It's like they spiritualize this. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. However. Yeah. However, that's the thing right yeah. there is the, however, I have conversations with people who, who have that view. They call it the Christocentric view mm. or a Christocentric hermeneutic where it's like, it all ties back to Christ. It all ties back to redemption. And I don't mm-hmm. necessarily agree with that premise. Right. It's just that they allegorize everything to where if something doesn't in their mind directly relate to redemption, then it just, it's meaningless. So like Israel, um, being literally preserved by God. Well, mm-hmm. they're not believing in Jesus right now. Right. So it doesn't directly relate to a redemption, right. To their redemption, to their, their salvation. So they just kind of think, oh no, they've been rejected. Same thing with the temple of Ezekiel. Right. Since it doesn't directly relate to redemption in some way, the idea of, uh, like a new, temple being rebuilt and animal sacrifices to them. They just think it's going backwards. Right. So I admit, let's talk about that. Right. But don't sacrifice the plain sense of the text just because you can't understand exactly how it fits. Right. But again, that's, that's what they get hung up on. It doesn't seem to fit into their understanding of redemption. And so they'll just say, Oh, well, it's a big allegory. Yeah. The allegory is like their escape device. If they don't understand it, they don't say it's all allegory. Yeah. So I think they're wrong about that. Right. But I think dispensationalists so much, if you even, some of them, if you even 
mentioned that, oh, this, this person is a type of Christ. Right. You know, or this is a type of, you know, a heavenly truth. Right. They get really, really bothered by it. So anyways, we'll talk more about that next time, but that just shows that, you know, there's some deep issues here that Christians need to be aware of, and it really does affect people's preaching. Right. It really does affect, you know, what you're going to hear in Bible study, how you read your Bible in your individual time. And so uh, we'll keep talking about this next week. Hopefully y'all enjoyed it. God bless you.